hear these words from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So uh, a number of years ago, uh, maybe 12, 15 years ago, um, I had the opportunity, my my in-laws... I think my mother-in-law got my father-in-law for his birthday, I think it was, a guided fishing trip. Um, It was to go fish for hybrids in Lake Bridgeport near Decatur. Um, And they were planning this trip, and the week before, they realized that the package she had bought him allowed for three people to go on the trip. And so they asked me to join them on this trip. And of course, I said yes. Don't pass up an opportunity to go fishing. So I joined them on this, this fishing trip, and we have a guide, and we get out on the boat, and it is a terrible morning for fishing. The wind is blowing, it's colder than we thought it was going to be, and we're out there and nothing's happening. And finally he's like, okay, we're going to change things up, we're going to troll for a little while. So we set out a few, like four lines, and we're going along and nothing's happening. I'm like, oh boy. Happy birthday to my father-in-law. Uh, no fish. So we're sitting there. He's like, I'm not, the guy is like, I'm not sure we're going to have much success today. We'll go a little bit longer. And I remember sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, boom, first line hits. There's a fish on. And they look at me, and they're like, Darren. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a good, humble son-in-law. You go first. It's your birthday So my father-in-law grabs the rod, and he starts reeling it in. And about that time, another line, boom, hits. And I'm like, and my mother-in-law looks at me, like, Darren, it's yours. I'm like, no, no, you go first. Because I'm so humble. And so she jumps up, and she grabs the line, and she starts reeling in. And they're both pulling in, and we can see as they're reeling them in, they each have a couple of white bass on there, maybe two pounds each. Great fish, that's fun. But I'm like, oh, great, they got to catch their fish. And about that time, humble little Darren sees a third line hit. I have to take it, right? I mean, I have no option at this point. So I'm like, I'll get this one. So I grab the rod and I pull it. I'm like, ah, here's probably another two pound. Nope, that is not. And I was in for a fight for the next few minutes. And I brought in a nine-pound hybrid with my father-in-law and mother-in-law sitting there holding their little two-pound bass. And 
I, I, I put the picture up here today, which I found because I know preachers, and you know preachers, and if I say I caught a nine-pound bass and don't have that, you're going to doubt that actually happened. I know you. I know you. So this is the proof. This is not up there because I'm trying to brag. That is not why I'm doing this. Purely just to verify my story. Well, it was a fun day. I felt really bad for my, you know, I mean, they caught fish. That was fun. But man, I got the nine pound hybrid in a lake where the record was 10.4. So it was a good day for me. Um, I think that's the only fish I caught that day. But it was a blast. I love fishing. I could have stayed on that lake all day long, even with the wind, just waiting for the next catch. Because I love fishing. So I'll be honest, I don't understand, I don't get the guys in this story. Jesus walks up seemingly out of nowhere and tells these four men to leave their boats, their nets, that next catch and follow him. And and then Jesus adds this little extra incentive for following him. He says, I will send you out to fish for people. And they don't hesitate. They get out of their boats and they follow him. But I'll be honest, I'm an introvert and I love fishing. Nothing about this invitation sounds appealing to me. (laughs) Fish for fish or fish for people, uh, I know which one I'm going to choose probably. I'm pretty sure I would have stayed behind with old Zebedee in the boat. All right, so I'm being a little playful here. But I'm trying to show this story is actually quite ridiculous. I mean, Jesus shows up and he says, come follow me. And they do it. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story and you go, oh yeah, come follow. No, no. A guy walks up and says, come and follow me. And you go. I mean, James and John leave their father sitting in the boat. And they take off after this Jesus guy. What would make them leave like that? Why would they follow Jesus? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to go back a couple of verses in about 700 years. So here we are in the 700s B.C., okay? And the people of God, Israel, they have divided into two different kingdoms, We have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, where Jerusalem is and the temple. And these two kingdoms now are not getting along so well. And they have kings, both for Israel and Judah. And most of the time, the kings of Israel and Judah are not doing so great. And the people of Israel and Judah are not really doing so great. They've forgotten the law. They have turned to idols They are oppressing the poor, the widow, the orphan. And God sends prophets to warn them. Lots of prophets. But in the end, Israel does not get their act together, the northern kingdom. And so Assyria comes and takes them off into exile around 722 B.C. So here they go, 10 tribes off into Assyria, into captivity. Oh man, 
Well, Judah in the south, they see that. Got to get my act together. And so they write the ship for a brief time, but they can't quite get it right either. And so in 587, Babylon shows up to the southern kingdom. And there with King Nebuchadnezzar, they come in and they take the people of Judah off into exile into Babylon and they destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the place of worship, the place where God's people encounter God. And so God's people find themselves in exile. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and Babylon appears to be in control. And Nebuchadnezzar and his successor are ruling over the people of God. And things are looking pretty hopeless for the Jewish people. And it certainly doesn't look like Yahweh, you know, the, the one who made a covenant with Israel and has been faithful to that covenant, the one who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. The one who brought them into the promised land, the one who gave them a king, even though it meant they were rejecting God as their king, the one who established the throne in Jerusalem, the one who led Israel to flourishing. That Yahweh does not seem to reign. And so a text like Isaiah 52 that Jane Ann read, it comes like a breath of fresh air. Because it gets to the core of the situation. Israel's God does not currently reign. And the people desperately need some good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Oh, that would be some really good news, wouldn't it? I mean, when you're off in exile, your home and your place of worship have been destroyed, and you're serving a foreign king in a foreign land, you long for God to reign again. Because when, because when God reigns, there would be peace, wholeness, salvation, shalom. And so God's people, they latch on to these words of hope. Words of anticipation when God would reign again. But how long can they hope? Because soon after those words are delivered and said to them off in Babylonian exile, well, here comes Persia. And Persia, the newest empire on the block, comes and takes over Babylon and subsumes the Jews underneath Persia. Another foreign king in another foreign land. But then, you know, Osiris, the king of Persia, he lets some of them return. Let some of the Jews return back to Jerusalem. And they, and they start to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But they aren't free. They are still under the control, under the reign of another king. Of another kingdom. And then, even though they're back... And Persia's been better, at least, than Babylon. We get another empire that rises up, 
Greece, Alexander the Great, shows up and Greece takes over. And now here they are under another king and kingdom. And then Greece kind of falls apart and we get another empire, the Seleucid Empire, and they take over. And then comes the biggest one of all, Rome. The Roman Empire and Caesar. They take over. And the Jews continue to wait and continue to hope. They're trying to hold on to those words. And throughout these developments, I do have to say, God's people, they do have times when it seems like things are going to turn. When they might be delivered or saved from these foreign empires, these occupiers, these oppressors. Times when it seems like maybe God will reign again. But the time doesn't come. And so they keep waiting. They keep waiting for those feet that will bring the good news that God reigns. They've been waiting for centuries now. And then they hear it. The time has come. The reign of God has come near. Those words of Jesus. Now, I would have to say, I know most translations say kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has come near, and that's right. But I do want to point out, it's easy to miss the significance here. Because when we hear the word kingdom, we often think of a territory, right? So think like when you hear the kingdom of Saudi Arabia today. But that's not really where the emphasis is. It's on actually who rules. So it's more like saying the kingdom of Genghis Khan. It's about the who. And so when Jesus shows up and proclaims this good news, it means that God, Yahweh, is about to reign. He is about to rule. The time has come, finally. This is what God's people have been waiting for, been longing for, because if God reigns, then that means Caesar or any other ruler is no longer in, ch in charge. Times, they are a-changing. This good news frames Jesus' whole ministry, his whole mission. And it also helps make sense why some fishermen in Galilee are willing to walk away from their livelihood, their families, that next catch. I mean, you have to appreciate these guys. Right? I mean, especially James and John, those sons of Zebedee. Jesus calls them, and they leave their dad sitting in the boat. Now, I can't help but picture that here they are with a bunch of fish that they've just caught in the boat that need to be clean, and the two sons are like, well, the Messiah's here, gotta get going, dad, and leave them there, right? to clean it all up, but there they go. They follow. They leave to follow Jesus because they have a hunch. They have this sneaking suspicion that this guy, this one that's just shown up at the lake there, 
is the one that they've been waiting for. That maybe they think that this is the one who will overthrow Rome. The one called the Messiah. And so they take off to join the revolution. To follow the one who will lead them to victory. To take down Rome once and for all. To participate in the restoration of Israel and the glory that awaits them. And I'll tell you, this becomes apparent that this is at work in their minds. The next time old Mark checks in on James and John. Let's read what the old sons of Zebedee are up to in Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) Wow. Um, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. No kidding. Jesus, that was my addition right there, by the way. Uh, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many old james and john they obviously have their eyes on the prize right They've seen the power and authority of Jesus walking around, healing people, exercising demons, teaching. They've seen it all. And they are becoming convinced that he is the Messiah. And so, it's time to secure their spots at the top. Now, in the background of this story, we have to understand there there are uh, these triumphal processions that are happening in the world there that would occur after a battle particularly in the roman empire okay so when a ruler or a general would win a battle um, a great parade would follow him so you can imagine in rome this great procession that would lead outside of the city all right and they would find a hill and the leader would be celebrated for their victory on this hill and on his right And on his left would stand his top two lieutenants, the ones that help him 
win, helped him win the battle. The ones that have proven they are worthy. The ones with power. And the glory would be theirs standing there on the left and the right. The glory would be theirs, and so would the power. And this is what James and John are asking for. Because they still think Jesus is like every other ruler. And I love that the the other ten apostles, they get mad. They're upset. As I would too. But you got to understand, I mean, you could read this as if the ten, they're mad because how dare they? Don't they get it? Why are they asking for those positions? Come on, James and John. No, I, actually, I think they're mad because James and John asked first. Like, oh, waited a little too long for the request. I wasn't sure. And now they're mad because they want that spot on the right or the left. They want the positions of power. They want the glory. But they've all misunderstood what kind of king this is. They've failed to comprehend what things will be like when God reigns. And so, a few chapters later, we see who gets to be on the right and the left of this king when he is crowned when he is celebrated for victory, when he's dying on a cross. Two criminals. Two bandits. Two people who the world has discarded. And there's Jesus. Right in between. So I have good news for you today. The reign of God is at hand. Repent, turn around, and believe that good news. But don't just believe it. Go and follow the one who is king. Leave your boats, leave your next catch, and follow Jesus. And when you look around for those who exemplify the way of Jesus to know what it's like to follow Jesus, when you seek to find people to imitate, when you want to know who gets what it means to follow Jesus in God's kingdom, ask yourself, do they look look more like those seeking positions of power? Or do they look like criminals shunned by those in power? Because it's the latter who are on the right and left of King Jesus.